HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Ancestry. You can savor your story in a whole new way with Ancestry DNA. With over 350 regions and two times the geographic detail of other DNA tests, Ancestry can connect you to the culture, cuisines, and traditions of your heritage in a deeper way. What discoveries will you bring to the table? Ancestry DNA is on sale for just $59 until August 20th. Learn more at Ancestry.com MTBE. That's MTBE as in meant to be eaten. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie, and joining me today is Michael Kadekel. He's written on the state of food activism, the intellectualism of slow food, how and why cereal that claims to be 100% natural is in fact lying to you, and on the history and evolution of food branding. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Um, so I feel like, let's just, let's just jump into it, a little yeah. bit of the, the history, but um, I feel like when we hear about um, craving fat and sugar, it's People like to say it's like, oh, it's because back in the primitive time, right, like we didn't know when we were going to get food, so we just wanted to eat as much calorie-laden foods as possible, and that's why we love it today. Um, and so I feel like that's the kind of like biologic side, and I was wondering if you could kind of break down like the cultural or the economic side of why um, craving fats and sugars are, I don't know, problematic. Uh, sure. So... I think uh, some of what I comment on in my work is some of the problems of rendering taste or cravings as being natural or unnatural, Uh, not because it's not tied to evolution, possibly. I mean, I'm not an evolutionary scientist. I can't uh, comment on that fully. But but the problem is the way we use natural in our society has so many moral connotations, and often natural is just a stand-in for good. But so many of the things we talk about, um, whether it's like sugar is natural or, uh, or sugar is unnatural, like you're not meant to have sugar, which you hear from people too, um, relies on usually a kind of like that means 
you know, God doesn't intend that, or, or it's not the way things are supposed to be, but who, who gets to say what's supposed to be what? Yeah, and I also feel like that changes with time, right? Like um, maybe 10 or 20 years ago, Splenda was super cool, right? <laughs> it was like, ooh, you can drink uh, soda without calories, and now it's like, how dare you put Splenda <laughs> in that, right? You got to use sugar in the raw or whatever. Absolutely, and what kind of sugar is considered? Uh, natural is corn syrup natural is high fructose corn syrup natural uh, you know there are lots of books about just what kind of sugar uh, there's this great book by April Merlot uh, a historian at Florida International about how for a long time in the early 20th century beet sugar and cane sugar which to us would not most people would not know whether they're getting one or the other had this whole rhetoric of being civilized being natural uh, attached to it and so that was all tied up in, well, you know, one of these sugars is harvested in the United States. One of these sugars comes, uh, was harvested mainly by black people in the Caribbean. And a lot of that, you know, a lot of the language of natural is, I don't want to say code because that makes it sound intentional, but it's, it, and sometimes it is intentional, but is uh, pulling into on values that are related to who is doing what kind of work and who is doing what kind of eating. Yeah, so let's backtrack maybe 60, 70 years, right? During the war effort, um, there was this creation of this, um, like the unhealthy other, right? And who would, can you talk about who that is and how this myth has kind of persisted? Sure, so I would date it further back even actually, um, I mean, I'm, I don't know. If, I don't know if you could find a time in history where there haven't been people to, uh, being marked out as unhealthy. But certainly in the time I focus on, which is kind of the late 19th, early 20th century, there was a real movement of people, primarily middle and upper class people, who said, "Okay, we are healthy. Right? We know how to live. We keep our places clean." And then there are these other people, mostly immigrants, mostly uh, working class people, um, people of color, and they were depicted as being unsanitary. Uh, and so some of what I talk about actually is that, you know, for early breakfast cereal manufacturers and other prepared food manufacturers, one of their big slogans was in complete opposition to the way that slow food or any artisanal manufacturer talks about it. They would say, our food is natural in part because it's untouched by human hands it was done completely on machinery. And so who are the human hands they're avoiding? They're not their hands, right? They're, these people aren't working. It's the hands primarily of immigrant workers, uh, the kind that Upton Sinclair talked about in the jungle, right? And so because they're seen to be dirty, they are also seen as a direct infusion of disease into middle and upper class homes. So actually, by not having them there, if natural is good and natural is clean, then what is more natural and clean than a sterile factory? And how has that changed? Because now it's super in vogue to touch your food a lot, right? Yeah. Like really um, even eat the weeds that are grown next to it and just really be involved with the process of growing your food. So how, why and what, how did that evolve? Yeah, um, that's true. But I still don't think it's a total... I'm not sure we've moved totally to saying it's okay for food to be touched by anybody because even when you talk about organic uh, or ethical food of various stripes, quote-unquote, 
we don't talk about labor that much, and, and that's beginning to change. Um, there, there are some new initiatives to push for labels that talk about the status of labor. Uh, but you know, you buy cage-free, you can buy cage-free eggs and free-range eggs and organic this. Um, but it, they don't talk about the primarily immigrant workforce that is working really, really tough in really, really tough, awful, exploitative conditions, even on organic farms often. Um, and so when we talk about work and we talk about this kind of valorization of work with food, we're often talking about the consumer. And the consumer who is doing, who, who is, uh, how do I say this? Consumer who doesn't have to do it for a living. Okay, the people who it's moral for them to do food are people who don't have to do it. They're people who use their leisure time to work with food. Uh, or maybe they're chefs at very high-profile restaurants, uh, but they're not, but they are, the, the supposition is usually that these are people who had a choice in life. These are not, they're not confined to working with food. And that, I think, is an important difference. Totally. And I feel like, especially with coffee lately, there's this huge push to see what which farm it was grown on, um, who was the farmer slash the owner of the land. Um, and while I think that's super great, I also don't understand how the consumer is to use that information. Aside from <laughs> being like, all right, like, great, thanks for that. So what is, what is the point, if I may be so blunt? What is the point of knowing where things come from and, and who works on them? I think or? on the coffee, because it's also... Sadly to say, it's often on coffee that is sold at a much higher price, right? And so what do they gain by telling their consumer, this is where we got it. It, it is traceable. Yes, that's really good. And um, it's sustainable, blah, blah, blah. But why and how should the consumer read this information and use it? That's a really tough question. <laughs> um, I don't think we have an apparatus that really can tell consumers how people are being treated when it comes to their food. There's so much information to know, and there's so many variables, and frankly, most people just don't have the time to be able to do that. Um, that is, I mean, the part of the reason that, uh, you know, one of the main critiques, and I know this, again, this is changing, but one of the main critiques of, a, of much of the food movement has been that it's connected to people with... Um, or practiced primarily with by people in middle upper class uh, strata, and that's not purely a function of food costing more. Uh, there's this great um, book, The Sum of Small Things, that I just read, uh, that talks about how a lot of the things that separate the elite and the non-elite have are not things that necessarily cost more, although sometimes they do. But also, it's having the time to be able to know what is good, quote-unquote, to buy. Um, time is a luxury that, that a lot of people don't have. And so if you can't pay people to outsource that, to, to get that information, right, you rely on proxies. And I think a lot of people look for proxies in things like GMOs, in things like organic, in things like free-range, cage-free, etc. Those are proxies that say, okay, this is good. I don't have a ton of time, but I know that this is a thing that I can do and I need to eat, but I don't want to destroy the world in the process. But the problem is that those proxies don't really stand in 
for they don't really address labor. And there's a lot of things they leave unaddressed. They don't necessarily address environmental impact either. Uh, so part of it is just we <laughs> there needs to be better labeling and a way to give that information in a in a concise way. And that's a massive challenge. Conversely, I, I, I also think <laughs> that um, I, I love Alice Waters. She's a huge inspiration. But if I might, may critique on this one thing, um, I think there's a quote where she talks about how, um, you know, lower class, low income uh, consumers just need to have more knowledge about the food and then they're going to start eating organic and then everyone's going to have a beautiful garden, right? But it's not that simple, right? Um, even if they knew that kale is healthy, right? It's not like we're all going to start buying kale instead of fast food. It's just not economically viable. So it's not really cost. It's I mean, it's not not cost also, right? It is, absolutely. It is cost and, um, you know, like... Michael Pollan and Alice Waters, some of these uh, advocates in this line, have said things like, well, you know, okay, we spend less on food than we used to, which is true. Uh, you could pay for organic if you wanted to. And I think one of the problems with that is that it's really easy for them to make that critique, to say, like, you know, you can choose whether to put all your money into cell phones or to organic food, but Michael Pollan doesn't have to choose between a cell phone and organic food, and he doesn't know what he would do if he did have to choose. Mm. choose. Somebody might need the things they're buying for many other reasons that we don't have a full understanding of. So I think once you're saying, like, somebody should just make this choice, you're often getting into pretty dicey territory. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a bit about how um, the choice to buy X food over Y food is then wrapped up in this weird morality issue where it's like if you're choosing to buy cell phones over kale then you're like you're doing a disservice to yourself and to your community yeah totally um and this is something that again i go back to uh in my research came up a lot in the early 20th century and people would say you know part of the way you can condemn people who uh are already powerless in society is by faulting them for the things that they can't afford to do. Uh, and you say it's a just choice, right? It's just, it's their choice. Why do they live in slums? Why don't they clean their houses? Why don't they do X, Y, Z? And, you know, first of all, most of the time, what they're saying is not true. Like, the, <laughs> you know, um, most of these are horrible stereotypes that are used to justify all kinds of uh, punitive actions. But, but uh, choice is there's a degree to which choice is also a product of luxury and the luxury again is partly having more information um, there's also so one of the other critiques um, from Charlotte Biltikoff of people like Michael Pollan and Alice Waters is that even though they take ostensibly anti-consumerist stances by putting so much of their efforts on consumer choice they're actually embodying a consumerist ethos because they're saying actually personal responsibility is what matters. They're saying, look, the free market provides. Do your duty as a consumer and take what's given to you. And that is not ultimately probably going to be that helpful. Um, 
yes, theoretically, if every single person stopped buying uh, meat today, they would stop raising cows for slaughter. That is probably true. It's also very unlikely. And there are many systemic factors working against that happening, part of which is the, in, the difficulty accessing information, part of which is the uh, system of subsidies towards unhealthy food, which is obviously something Michael Pollan talks about a lot. And I don't, I don't want to make it sound like they're completely unaware uh, of these issues. But part of the problem, and this is what I've argued in my other work, is that that language of personal responsibility based on a premise of I know what's best is actually a really useful thing for activists like Michael Pollan and Alice Waters and and less famous people, but also for industry. It's the same thing that companies say when they're trying to sell food. They say, this is what's best. We know what's best because of science or intuition or whatever, tradition even. I mean, there's nothing a company's not going to invoke. Uh, to sell food, and often the people writing those ads are the same. Believe what they're saying, um, and so if we're always in a place where we're trying to heal the world just by making our own decisions, our own purchasing decisions based on what other people are telling us, the problem is that's what got us into this mess in the first place. Because that's what com- that's the same slogan companies were saying: buy natural food. A hundred and 10 years ago and then people bought that that was how uh, people started buying prepared food so you know if you don't like the industrial food system the best way to to uh, collapse it is not necessarily to use the methods that built it in the first place Hmm. so okay we'll get into that later but um (laughs) can we talk about a little history of how food has been used as kind of the social tool or like a Yeah, like as a way of acting out your social duty, right? Like I remember reading this Biltakoff book that um, food was kind of seen as like your way of helping the defense effort, right? Or or your way of being the upstanding citizen. And so how how does that look like today? Yeah, so... um so, so it happens in a couple ways, right? Like food is the upstanding citizen. Uh, one of the best examples of that is, as you referenced earlier, during the war, right? During World War I and World War II. The Office of War Information, the propaganda arm of the U.S. government put out a lot of ads encouraging people to contribute to war on the home front. And one of the ways they wanted people to contribute to war on the home front was through rationing. Uh, so they said, use less wheat, um, use less, use fewer grains, you eat, uh, eat less meat. Uh, because they needed this food to go overseas. Uh, they needed food for soldiers. There weren't as many people working in production. So for them, that was a very literal, like, resource use use uh, thing. But food as a signifier, I think, transcends wartime and is everywhere. One of the, one of the examples that is maybe most... Um, you know, one, one example is, and you see this everywhere in, in New York, right? People walking around with these T-shirts that it's like the Yale University logo, but with instead of kale. Yale, it says kale. Yeah. And it's like, I think that sums it up in, in a nutshell, right? Like it's, there, it's tied into both elite, being elite, 
Yale is something. Yale, as an Ivy League university with incredibly high tuition, is both very elite, uh, but as part of the American university system, has sort of the illusion of being meritocratic. Like anybody who got in is supposed to have just earned, like they just studied, right? They just listened to their teachers and did their homework. Again, it's an issue of choice. And we say they were just a good student. And now we're recognizing, well, actually we've recognized for a long time, that actually there are massive roadblocks for a lot of people to get into a place like Yale, even if their parents, you know, even if the tuition is waived, there are massive roadblocks. Um, but then also... Right, so, so it's so it's connected to, to to both money, and the illusion that personal choice is going to fix the world, and that illusion of personal choice actually, in a perverse way, can help to sustain class inequality because so many people are convinced that they made it on their own because we're a meritocratic elite. Like, yes, the world's unfair, but if somebody worked hard, they could have got here too. And, oh, no, no, sorry, no, 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 please. Keep going. No, keep going. <laughs> oh, no, and I, and I think that translates to nutrition, too. There's status symbol associated with having a Starbucks cup. There's status associated with subscribing to something like slow food. It, it just positions you as somebody who has done your homework on how to take care of yourself. And in our moment right now, health is something that is very fashionable. So... Um, and it shows that you're making the right choices, which means if you do have problems, you're probably not responsible for them. And can you define what being healthy means today, right? Like it, it doesn't necessarily just mean just eating kale or just eating acai, <laughs> but kind of also enjoying the food that you're eating and taking the time to enjoy the food you're eating. So yeah, what, um, what does healthy mean today and how has that changed? Totally. So, um, right. So, so one thing Bill Tukov talks about also is the kind of conflation of pleasure and health. And that's actually something new, right? Think about when, when we were growing up, it was always, oh, is it healthy or does it taste good? Right? Mm -hmm. Like, like no kid would eat vegetables. That's new. Um, when we were, you know, in the early 20th century or something, they thought that kids food was, uh, fruit and vegetables that kids would just eat anything because they were born with uncivilized palates and you had to get them in order. One of the main differences between now and the early 20th century is that in the early 20th century, you had more of the sense that flavorless food was healthy because you were, you had self-control. It was a symbol of, of self-control that you could uh, resist overeating flavorful things and have these really bland items that were kind of resembled what they would serve in a hospital, right? Like porridge is, is, was invalid food. Um, not exclusively, uh, there's obviously a rich tradition of having porridge like meals, but, but as a mush, like a mushy food is really good for sick people too. So while the blandness issue has gone away, I think the issue of self-control is still there. Right. And so there's something valiant in even if it's not even if it because everything we think is healthy, now, you know, even some things we think are healthy now will probably turn out to not be healthy or certain diets. Right. Like you can be gluten free and vegan and still manage to eat an incredibly unhealthy diet. Right. Like if you it's very french easy. Very, yeah. You can live on french fries yeah. and cookies if you want it. Right. <laughs> like and you'd be gluten free and vegan. Mm -hmm. Well, gluten free cookies, obviously. Um, but. But the, the so the self control issue is still there, and then you do sometimes see it, and this is also 
a move that can be very insidious is, do you know that book, The Dorito Effect? No. Can you talk about yeah, so there's this book, um, and unfortunately I'm blanking on the author's name right now, but the, it was on the Dorito effect. And it argues that naturally um, people gravitate towards food that's healthy for them. But because flavor additives are so po- have such a powerful impact on the brain, the food industry has been able to chemically manipulate us into choosing food that is less healthy. Right, so this would be the, the inverse to what you opened with of we gravitate towards sugar and carbs because we're, our society has grown faster than our bodies and we don't know, we're not evolutionarily capable of living in this society. His argument is that actually, on the contrary, we are able to live in this society, but we've been so duped by the chemical industry and big business that we can't figure it out anymore. And this article has remnant, you know, resonances with stuff that Pollen will say too, right? Like Pollen has this line in, in defense of food, uh, we, we know what to eat or we used to know what to eat uh, until we stopped listening to common sense and the wisdom of our grandmothers um, and tradition. The danger with that kind of reasoning is that it means that people who crave and like food that is considered to be nutritious have the right instincts. And people who crave food that is considered widely to be unhealthy have the wrong instincts. And they are either being duped or there's just something inherently wrong with them. But they need to be educated and they need to be fixed. And I think that once, again, once you're getting into the territory of saying whose preferences are good or bad, are natural and God-given, even though we don't talk about God anymore, it is, they're talking about God. Really. Um, it's the same model. Are, are God-given and natural or chemical, industrial, fake, basically, then that also can get into some pretty dicey territory um, and can be a basis of authority that, again, is very amenable to industry, right? You don't know what you need, but we know what you need. This is Meant to Be Eaten. We're talking about the Dorito effect, and we'll be back right after a short break. Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Just for me, girl. Please don't give This episode is brought to you by Ancestry. You can savor your story in a whole new way with Ancestry DNA, and I'm excited to experience this firsthand. Thanks to Ancestry, I've had the opportunity to find out more about my own heritage. Last week, I talked about how easy it was to take the Ancestry DNA test. Just take a quick saliva sample and drop it in the mail. And quite honestly, when dropping off the kit, I had little to no expectations of uncovering anything that interesting. I thought I was 100% Chinese. My mom and her parents immigrated to Brooklyn from southern China, a village where eight generations preceded theirs, and my dad from Hong Kong to England, and his family's all still there. I was so surprised to learn that I'm actually 11% Polynesian, which means that one of my great-great-great-grandparents was Polynesian. Ancestry provides not just your ethnicity percentage breakdown, but also an overview of your culture, history, and origins. This information was so interesting. Polynesia is described as a world defined by the ocean. So maybe that's why I wanted to be a marine biologist in high school and worked with local seafood these past two years. And now my name Coral seems like an awesome coincidence. 
But seriously, I'm stoked to embrace the Polynesian part of me by consuming more taro and scoping out somewhere in Brooklyn where I can build an earth oven. I'm inspired to cook with that style in mind, a focus on seafood or fruit with French and Chinese influences. You too can discover the culture, cuisines, and traditions of your heritage in a deeper way. Ancestry DNA is on sale for just $59 until August 20th. Learn how to savor your own story at Ancestry.com slash MTBE. That's MTBE as in meant to be eaten. Okay, so in... I'm just quoting the book now. I love that book so much. We're talking about the Biltakoff book. But um, in the 60s and 70s, uh, Biltakoff talks about how there's this cultural shift and we start being allowed to enjoy food. And so how is that at odds with enjoying Doritos? Like, why are we allowed to enjoy carrots but not Doritos? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think it goes back to this um, this point of where, where it's like, okay, pleasure wasn't the thing that was bad. It's that we didn't really know what pleasure was, right? And that, and that we were seeking it in the wrong places. But there's a more moral and a better place to seek pleasure. And yeah, it's in carrots, not in Doritos, because carrots are real. Uh, and Doritos aren't. And uh, that is something that happens happens around that. I think part of part of it is that it comes out of the counterculture, right? So, so in the 60s and 70s, a lot of the food, things that are now actually much more mainstream, come out of counterculture. They come out of um, people on university campuses, people living in communes. And so much of the 60s uh, polit- political movement is towards saying, actually, like it's okay to not be repressed. It's okay to do what feels good for your body. Um, and I think that's great. You know, I, I don't think that's inherently a bad thing. Again, the problem is, right, why, why is somebody's pleasure, why is, why is the thing one person seeks pleasure in worse than the thing another person seeks pleasure in, especially if it's not harming anybody and also if there might be really, you know, uh, <laughs> systemic reasons for, for those choices. So why... Um, and you're not the only writer to take this stand, but why is then the slow food movement kind of, quote-unquote, anti-intellectualist? So the slow food movement, um, you know, and the slow movement does many, many good things. The slow food movement, and particularly many of the uh, people that I talk about directly, uh, like Michael Pollan or, um, like, the food babe, the the blogger, um, and some other influential food writers. The reason I think their rhetoric comes off as anti-intellectual is that they have gone from a position of saying, we've been misled by some scientists working for industry, or we've been misled by by industry speaking in the name of science, to the fact that something is complex becomes a reason to mistrust it. And there are very good reasons for taking that position. You know, the food industry and scientists have made many mistakes. Uh, They change their uh, conclusions a lot. Um, There have been nefarious experiments. Um, Often science has been incredibly elite, left out, 
people of color, women, working class people, or left them out and used them as experiments, uh, often without their consent. Many reasons to be suspicious of science. Uh, and you know, if you're punching up to science, right? If, if science is the power, I think, then that, that makes sense, right? You, you want to say, like, science is not God. Science is not infallible. There's no, actually, when, whenever we say, one of my pet peeves is when people say science says X, right? Like, science says nothing. Science is a, a methodology. Scientists say things. Um, but one of the things that many uh, advocates of slow food say, uh, speak in a way, is like, you know, there are catchphrases along the lines of don't eat what you can't pronounce or uh, don't buy anything with more than three ingredients or something. And we were talking about proxies earlier. We were talking about the difficulty of processing information earlier. I completely understand the need to have shorthands that are perhaps oversimplifying but are available to consumers. But I do think it is dangerous to... Um, diminish complexity inherently um, because if you're diminishing complexity in food then what does that mean for society in general if we're going to say you can't eat something because it was related to chemistry um, or because it has chemicals but everything has chemicals right we mean dangerous chemicals we're using shorthand uh, but there aren't chemicals that aren't dangerous uh, or in certain proportions, right? Um, and I think, again, so I said punching up earlier, right? For a long time, it was the powerful people, the powerful people were strongly aligned with the scientific establishment. That's not true anymore. We don't live in a world right now where science is always the reigning ideology of the people with power. And actually many people with power today would find would not love slow food but would love a lot the idea that yeah you should just do what you've always done or what you think you've always done um, it, nothing is more important than what you believe uh, nature to be or your culture to be um, and all fact and truth is relative so I think there's you know there's a bleed through there that that is worrying. And so anti-intellectual, I really hesitated to use the word because it's often used as a slur. It can be used as a kind of synonym for stupid, and that's not how I mean it. I don't mean people who are stupid. I don't mean people who are anti-science. And I don't mean anyone who's inherently something. But there are people who speak in a way that, uh, that uses people's uh, education and um, and scientific knowledge against them. And that doesn't seem to me a helpful place to start. Okay, so this is really interesting because whenever I read the tagline intellectualism of slow food, the way I took it was to mean that slow food methods encourage anti-intellectualism, oh. a.k.a. a return to simpler methods um, like no machines, right? right? Just hands-on farming. And so my argument was that doesn't slow food, in fact, encourage intellectualism because it's encouraging education of food, mm. right? With like edible schoolyard, right? Like come and learn about these veggies you're growing. Totally. Um, yeah. 
absolutely. And that's, you know, I don't want to paint slow food, especially with a with a broad brush. Um, I'm particularly concerned with the way people speak about natural food, uh, quote unquote. Oh yeah, we should talk about what is your research in like a elevator pitch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what, what are you researching? And yeah. Uh, yeah, so my research is on um, the industrialization of the food supply in the early 20th century, and particularly why so many people thought that actually industrializing the food supply was a really great moral thing to do and a way to get away from modern life. Um, my case study is the breakfast cereal industry, who were one of the earliest and largest makers of mass-produced, mass-distributed foods, and who also marketed their food as natural. Uh, and if you think about the the amount of eyes that their advertisements saw, it's very likely that they influenced how a lot of people think about nature and natural food. And that was in the early uh, 20th century. So a lot of the rhetoric that we hear now, you go back and read old advertisements, you'll see it there, but it was there first. What are some examples? Uh, so... You know, one example I think I used in the article was Michael Pollan, uh, one of his, you know, kind of easy thing to do. Don't eat something your great-grandmother wouldn't recognize. Uh, There's a shredded wheat advertisement from 1901 that says, your great-grandfather ate good food and now you eat terrible food. Hmm. So, like, the people who Michael Pollan's talking to their great-grandparents were being told by corporations that their great-grandparents were the ones who knew what food to eat. Um, do you think he knew of this advertisement? Like, do you think this is a conscious reiterating of that narrative? No, I don't. And, and I don't think it's, like, plagiarism or something. Right. I think it's... I think it's just interesting that he would... Right? Like, that seems like something he should totally combat, but instead <laughs> is just persisting. Well, I think it's in the culture. And that's what I'm saying. I, like, mm-hmm. I think that it is symptomatic of a... Nature itself is a proxy. I think a lot of the way people use nature, they use it as a, as a synonym for God or religion or, uh, you know, nature with a capital N. What does nature want you to do? Uh, I think they use it as a proxy for culture and instinct which are often linked right like it's something that that is inherited and it's part of you uh and so you should do this because this is, and tradition falls into this too um so it's almost more natural um and, and i think there's almost this this charge that you know if you're thinking you're overthinking to some degree i think you're totally right about the food education And obviously many people uh, who are food advocates want people to be more educated about their food. But the type of knowledge they want them to have about their food is often different than the type of knowledge that would be considered valuable by a scientist. And that's not a bad thing. There needs to be more openness to knowing about how a food uh, exists culturally, how a food exists uh, in its ecosystem, how a food exists in a really macroscopic way. But that doesn't mean that knowing about food in a microscopic way, what has been labeled nutritionism, uh, that knowing, obviously, knowing about protein, carbohydrates, sugar content, this is all oversimplification. This is all reduction of something more complex than we really understand into things we can use as shorthand. But so is the reduction of food to, oh, this is 
like cultural or this is natural or this is unnatural. Like it's all shorthand. So I don't see, um, so, so right. So, so it's emphasized. If I could, sorry, if yeah, I could push yeah, on please. that a little bit, yeah. what is it shorthand for? Uh, natural, you mean? Yeah. I think it's often shorthand for good or moral. Um, I think it's shorthand for, yeah, yeah, the things okay. I was mentioning, good, moral, um, right to do, and you should do it. Right. <laughs> if something's more natural, it's, we don't use, they didn't always use natural that way. Uh, there was a time when natural really meant perishable. You wanted to stay away from something that was natural. Uh, but today, natural tends to mean good. Right, so like, um, I shop at a farmer's market on Saturday, I'm making the good moral choice. Exactly. Okay. And I think also intuitive. Um, like we were talking about before, what, what senses you have. Uh, you know, and the one thing that a lot of serial advertisements or, or any advertisements would talk about too was uh, kind of the difference between intelligence and knowledge. So knowledge is something that's cultivated and acquired through book learning. Intelligence is God-given. Uh, and I think that you get that today too with the, well, this is, you know, think about the intelligence as your connection to uh, something that's bigger than you, like a, like a larger culture, a larger uh, natural heritage of humanity. Um, and knowledge is the things that scientists have been working to create, and that's almost like hubris. You know, like how do they think they could understand something so unknowable as nature? But why is it that the only way to access quote-unquote, natural, good-for-you foods is through alternative systems or super-pricey systems? Like, why do we ha- live in a world where that's right. where that's the way? I know this is a, a big question, <laughs> but, yeah, your take. Well, I think a lot of it is uh, subsidies and incentives for the farm system. Um, there's not a lot of incentive to create food that is... Um, perishable or diverse um, simplification is profitable Hmm. then um, distribution is a major challenge right like what part of the reason that boxed foods came about to begin with is because they're much easier to store they're much easier to transport Uh, you can use things that people won't buy in them you can use really ugly cobs of corn uh, that people are never going to take home from the supermarket um or that will rot before they get there. So, and part of the reason that people first gravitated towards those foods is because they could be trusted. Uh, they were perceived as being trustworthy, right? So you go to a farmer's market and you see a lot of stuff that's sitting out in the open and now there are regulations and now that stuff is all great and it's usually very high quality produce. That was not the case when you were walking through the Lower East Side looking at push carts and what they had on offer. That was not going to be like the Union Square farmer market, farmer's market produce. So when you saw something that said, okay, wait, this is... But there is still that kind of blind trust of farmer's market today. I feel like, um, you know, I'll see a peach and it'll be, what, $5 a pound mm-hmm. at the farmer's yeah. market and I'll just think like, oh, well, it was grown locally <laughs> and by a farmer and there's a farmer right there and so this must be superior peach to the one that's at the Whole Foods even right across the street or at like totally. the Kroger. And so what's up with that? Yeah, I think some of that is the morality, right? Like, I'm, I, you know, I, you'd have to do empirical tests on this, but I would have to guess that most people shown 
the same piece of food and told that it came from different places would see it in a totally different way. And it's because our food is not just food, right? It's not just sustenance at all. It has so many moral connotations wrapped into it. And when you buy that $5 peach from the farmer's market, it's not just a peach. You're buying uh, environmental sustainability. You're buying health. You're buying supporting a local farmer. You're buying having gotten out in the sun to buy it. You're buying knowing about a more rarefied place to buy produce, right? So that part of that that is what makes that purchase worthwhile, even if it doesn't taste as good. Um, and then I think there's also a training yourself, right? Like, um, you know, it used to be that people who were going to have social status had to train themselves to like wine. Uh, now you have to train yourself to like vegetables. You have to train yourself not to like sugar, right? Like, because again, our natural preferences, quote unquote, right? Like the preferences that we come into our 20s with are not considered to be good enough necess- necessarily if we want to fit into a certain social world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was actually on a previous episode where I talk about how it's now very cool to like funky things or rotten things <laughs> right, or even yeah, like yeah. weeds, right? And then weeds are being sold at like $20 a pound at the market when it's like you could just pick that off the ground. <laughs> well, some of it is also, I think people want to, I think the price tag does bring reassurance for some people you know it's like okay if i'm paying for this it was probably cleaned it was probably vetted it was probably uh you know someone knows it's not poisonous Mm -hmm. there's someone i can sue i know they have enough money that i can sue them uh and part of the reason the brands have been built and persist i think is trust uh and that's what brands are able to do you know before brands became big uh rabbis actually would as people were moving to cities so people who ate kosher wanted a way to know that what they were eating was kosher but they didn't live near the rabbis they trusted anymore so rabbis would start putting signatures on boxes and be like this is okay you can eat it and it's okay. like there was never any personal interaction but you, you know you could eat it and brands were really good at uh picking up that that approach and so, you know, when, you're, when your walk home from work is past rotting food and you don't want to poison, you're afraid you're going to poison your kid because you can't afford to get something that's not rotten. Uh, but then you're like, oh, I heard there's this company in Battle Creek, uh, Michigan, called Postum, and everything they make is clean. And I know that that box has not been touched since it left Michigan. I'm just going to go pick up that and that's going to be safe because I trust them. Um, and so even if, even if it's not like the perfect situation, it's relatively affordable and it's trustworthy. So sometimes you settle for not, not poisonous, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the two, this is super reductive, but the two big food branding trends that I'm seeing a lot lately is like the artisanal craft, trend Mm -hmm. and then there's also like the super sleek futuristic um Mm. food is fuel brand oh like soylent like soylent exactly and so can you fill in all the gaps of this landscape for me (laughs) i wish i could it's amazing um i think you're totally right it's this um i think some of it is reaction you know i think some people were were artisanal and craft stuff has been around now long enough um and the cultural moment has has I think been fighting against reduced foods for long enough that we're now at a moment where, where we can say where, where I think the backlash is, is 
in full swing, right? Mm-hmm. Where like you can say artisan pita chips. <laughs> well, like artisan, yeah, well that, but then also like, yeah, I can eat, I can just have uh, this perfect blend of nutrients and that's fine. You know, mm-hmm. like that, and that somehow like now you're rebelling against slow food because it's now the cool thing to do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's also a division going on between like, okay, well, reduced food is okay, but it has to be the right type of reduced food. And it's still like, I wouldn't eat Doritos, but I'll have Soylent. Um, or I wouldn't have a granola, you know, this, you know, like is Soylent really that different than SlimFast or Ensure? I don't, I don't really know. But, I, I read <laughs> an article where it's actually really bad for you because it's like, it's not, they're not good nutrients. It's just like what you need to exist right. for, like, throughout the day <laughs> and just not feel lightheaded or something. But that's something. Yeah. <laughs> it's something, I guess. Um, yeah, it's um, it's a weird moment we're in. Um, I think it is also probably for people who for people for whom food is more functional, um, but maybe have sort of the cultural capital and financial capital uh, that they could get the food that was more artisanal. Um, even some of the artisanal food though still breaks it down into being very functional, right? Like the, you'll still, like if you walk into a, I don't know, like where would you put a juice bar? Is that functional or artisanal? Ooh, it depends. It depends on the juice bar because I feel like there are juice bars that really stress. I feel like juice bars that stress the type of produce that is used Mm -hmm. is artisanal. But if it's like meal replacer, protein, flax, nana shake, then that's <laughs> that's more <laughs> functional, right? Right, right, right. And they get mixed up. I mean, they get put together like uh, like naked juice. Like I would put Jamba Juice as not functional. Oh no, I would put Jamba Juice as functional, okay. and then I would put like a cold pressed juicery as artisanal. Okay. Because they have different approaches. I think though, even some of the artisanal food is like. You know, if you eat this, like, number one, you're saving the world. But if that's not good enough for you, you're also going to lower your heart rate, make your cholesterol better, live 70 years longer, and have perfect children. Mm-hmm. You know, like, there's... Wait, de- what's this food? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> so you don't know. Um, so I think that's definitely... You know, I think that, that, that health issue is never feels that far from the surface, even if it's not being spoken about in exactly the same terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I think that's all we have time for today. Okay. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks uh, for having me. We have still a lot of unanswered questions, <laughs> but I feel like that's kind of the state <laughs> this is all in. Absolutely. So. Thank you so much. Um, this is the last episode of the season, so our fall season returns September 5th. For listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, 
tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.